Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. My name is Kirsten Woody Scott, and I am a third-year PhD student in health policy. It is my great privilege and honor to introduce to you today a scholar, leader, and author, and our very own Harvard University president, Drew Faust. President Faust was born in New York City, obtained her AB at Bryn Mawr College, and then her PhD in American Civilization at the University of Pennsylvania, where she contributed many years of her scholarship on the history of the South and the antebellum period and Civil War. She is now the 28th president of Harvard and the first woman to, to assume this influential role. She's accomplished so much since arriving here in 2007. Her vision, poise, and leadership have been instrumental in helping Harvard navigate a most challenging economic environment. Yet she did not simply help us weather this financial storm. She helped us thrive as an institution throughout this difficult period. President Faust is also an accomplished researcher and prolific writer. Her most recent book, The Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War, has won numerous awards and serves as the inspiration of the 2012 episode of the American Experience documentaries on PBS titled Death in the Civil War, directed by Rick Burns. One of my favorite memories of her book tour, which is shared by a few professors with whom I have spoken, was to see her poise and wit as she fielded crafty and the often silly questions about her excellent book on the Colbert Report. As we've gathered here together for the series that focuses on how leaders in the field weigh the difficult and pressing decisions that we ask and expect for them to make, I am confident that we will enjoy this opportunity to learn from such an incredible leader whose decisions have touched us all. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to our very own visionary leader of Harvard University, President Drew Faust. I will now turn the program over to Dean Julio Frank. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, and welcome, welcome to everyone. Uh, in November of 2010, we opened this leadership studio, um, and basically with the idea of providing a forum where members of our community, students, faculty, staff, could interact with decision makers from every sphere of, uh, of life. It's been a, a, a very interesting experience because it was exactly the students who requested that we opened a whole series which we call Decision-Making Voices from the Field. They wanted very much to learn from people who've made decisions. How, how is the process? How, how does it happen that you make decisions? How do you face challenges? Now, um, within that series, a, a student group uh, on women in leadership has actually asked also to focus part of our programs on women in leadership positions. And that's particularly relevant for us because about 60% of our students are women. And we do educate in this school the future leaders of public health, both in the United States and across the world. Uh, the experience since the uh, studio opened has been quite uh, amazing. Uh, through our very high quality webcasting, we've uh, really multiplied the audience that follows uh, uh, our activities here. Let me just give you a couple of numbers. Um, since November uh, of 2010, we've broadcast or webcast 37 programs in total. 
And the cumulated total number of viewers is 163,000 from 180 countries. So this has been an outstanding forum to, to extend our message. Now, of all of those, today we really have a unique treat because we have our own president, President Drew Faust. Uh, this uh, conversation with her is being webcast. Uh, I know that thousands of people are watching it, and then many other uh, additional thousands will be watching it on, on demand. Um, so we're going to have a conversation with our president, uh, and uh, I'd like us to focus on three big uh, series of topics. The first one is exactly the, the, the theme of the series, women in leadership. The second is President Faust's vision, not just for Harvard University, but for the role of universities in the 21st century. How do we think about these enduring institutions in this uh, new era of connectivity and, and, and globalization? And then the third theme would be more focused in our own interest in global health and the global engagement of the university. So, so that's our plan for today. It's, it's, it's a conversation with President Faust. Let me um, just get started with a, with a first question. Um, you're, of course, the first woman to be president of Harvard University. But uh, in addition, you took the <laughs> uh, reins of this uh, venerable institution at a very, very complex moment in its, hi its history, um, uh, uh, facing you know, a, a major financial crisis. Can you share with us some of the most difficult decisions you have had to make what have been the principles that have guided you as, as you tried to steer this ship through the stormy weather? And what was the process that led you uh, and informed your decision making? Well, Julio, first let me say how delighted I am to be here and to have a chance to have this conversation with you. And you begin with a very big question, so <laughs> let me try to <laughs> grapple with that. How do I make decisions? The I make some little decisions. I think if you're in an organization, you'll find sometimes people turn to the leader to say, what color should the room be painted? Because it's much easier than just having to have votes and endlessly fight. And so <laughs> there are those kinds of decisions where you just say, this is what the holiday card will be, or this is the color we'll make the office if everyone's all right with that. But the significant decisions that I get to make are ones in which there are not black and white clear directions. They're mostly in the realm of gray. If they're not gray, somebody has made them before they come to me. And so there are always decisions in which you have to weigh alternatives. And there are alternatives with cases to be made for each side. So how do you go into the realm of gray and decide what the direction is you should pursue through, through that fog? When the financial crisis hit, just to make that a, a, a focus, one of the decisions I had to make that was very consequential was about the building underway, the science building that was underway in Alston. And the decision that, that I did make was to pause the construction of that building. How did I get to that decision? I think that's emblematic in a sense of a larger set of processes of decision making. First, I wanted to hear from every expert person that I could about what our financial circumstances were, where were we in the pace of construction, what would be the impact on the viability of the foundation if we stopped after the foundation was in place, who was supposed to go into that building, did we have any alternatives. So in a sense, research and listening about different people's perspectives and about getting information that might expand our realm of possibility. 
One thing we found out was that a group of scientists who'd had their hearts set and their work determined by the possibility of moving into the building, the stem cell group, could be housed in other space that would cost a whole lot less and would still enable them to do their work just as successfully. So that, that was reassuring because it took one risk off the table, the risk of slowing important science. What other risks could we take off the table to understand the decision better? The foundation was believed to be viable for a certain number of years, so we would not imperil what we had already invested. Then we needed to look at other risks, stop, go, what would they mean in terms of, and this was the basic motivating force, the financial situation. And when we looked at that one, we thought, what is the debt we would incur and what would the implications of that be? And here there was a key insight that arose from my listening to the, the views of those who understood these detailed circumstances far better than I. And that was we would really constrain our degrees of financial flexibility and optionality if we took on that much debt at this time for that building. It would be perhaps unaffordable. It would certainly have a big impact. But it would mean at a time when no one knew what direction the world was going to head, we would put ourselves on one path without off-ramps for other kinds of choices if circumstances worsened. And so for me, that is a key aspect of making a decision. Try to understand risks, try to mitigate risks, so that opens up avenues. But then also, flexibility in a situation of rapid change and uncertainty is a value in itself. If you, make, if you have two decisions and they look equally good, or two options and they look equally good, there's one that enables you to retain flexibility. That, in my view, is a preferable one because you're never sure what's going to happen next. And so those things all contributed to our decision to pause the building and helped me um, navigate my way through that particular set of challenges. But I just want to emphasize, underline all of this is a dependence on, a turning to others for expertise, points of view. Listening for me is such an important part of beginning to approach any, any difficult decision. And um, I mean, you are, uh, one, one thing that so many people say about you is that you're a fantastic listener. And very often when we, people talk about uh, leadership, we, we say, you know, an attribute of leadership is to be a good communicator. And we tend to think that that's being able to verbally express oneself well, but communication is a two-way street. And it's not just about how we say things. It's also the ability to listen is part of being a great communicator. Well, how do you know what you're going to communicate right. if you haven't already listened? And someone said to me recently, if you're not listening, you're not learning. And that's really true. When you listen to people, you get all kinds of information. You can figure out where they are. And if, if there's an issue and they're in a very different place from you, you can understand what the gap is. And then that gives you a basis on which to understand how to, to shorten that gap, how to um, undermine the gap so you can come together. And so to me, before I communicate, I want to know what I'm communicating and who I'm communicating with and what their expectations and views are so I know how to approach um, them and if I need something from them, how to formulate what it is I need in a way that will be understandable and palatable to them. Right. And the other is this idea, the other point I take, which I think is fantastic, is this idea of um, decision-making, in the, in the especially under conditions of great uncertainty, which is exactly what was happening mm -hmm. at that point. I mean, really not even the 
best experts knew what was going to happen. And uh, the idea that with two equal decisions, the one that gives you more degrees of freedom and more flexibility to change course in case mm -hmm. circumstances dictate mm -hmm. is, I think, a very, very, very interesting insight. Mm -hmm. um, let me open it up uh, to, we have mostly students here, um, for any, any uh, questions you want to pose to President Faust. Please go ahead. <coughs> Uh, please identify yourself. Yes, I'm, I'm Rachel Liao. I'm a fifth year PhD student here at the School of Public Health in the Biological Sciences and Public Health program. Uh, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today. My question uh, is regarding the, is under the, the second category that Dean Frank laid out, the place of higher education, the direction of higher education in the 21st century, and particularly with regard to edX, Harvard's collaboration with MIT online. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your vision for Harvard's role online in uh, higher education, where you see higher education going in the future. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Should I move on to this sure. set of questions? Yeah, sure. we'll go okay. back and forth probably. Okay. So. Um, as you know, Harvard and MIT uh, came to an agreement last May and announced it to launch a, a digital platform for online learning with three purposes, the first being the development of digital capacity that can affect education here on our campuses and really transform how we understand teaching and learning in our own residential environments. Secondly, to create a platform that would enable us to share the extraordinary intellectual resources of Harvard with the wider world. And third, to build up a body of information and data that could be a foundation for progress in analysis of where digital learning should go. What works, what doesn't work, how do people learn best, what can we use, all the information that will be generated as a result of our edX um, venture to further the whole um, possibility for this sector. I think this is extraordinarily important. I think higher education is in the kind of disruptive change that we have seen in other sectors in recent years because of the changing technological opportunities. We've seen newspapers change. We've seen music change. Everything that has to do with information is changing, and education is part of that. I think that the residential model of education has unparalleled um, attributes and will thrive and continue into the very far distant future. But I think it can be, the residential model can be enhanced and we can share so much more broadly beyond our own geographic locations. I was struck last year when I was in India, last January, um, and I met with the Public Health Foundation of India and heard uh, a lot of conversation about the enormous needs for public health expertise in India. India has a series of very difficult public health challenges, as I'm sure all of you know, and as, as Julio could cite far more um, vividly than I, but in terms of maternal mortality, in terms of levels of vaccination for children, it is really not doing as well as it ought to be doing. So how can India develop its capacity in that area. India has said that they think they need to found about 1,500 universities by 2020 in order to meet the demand for education. How is that imaginable? And what could Harvard contribute to that? I mean, some tiny contribution of, of our faculty going or of, of partnerships. And we will certainly pursue activities in that area. But that kind of appetite and need requires a very different approach. And I think that the, the digital outreach offers extraordinary possibilities. And we have right now, as of last Monday, right, 
a course on um, biostatistics. And epidemiology. And epidemiology. And there are more than 40,000 people signed up for this. And so the message, the learning, is going to be spread very dramatically in an area that's actually, I mean, if you think about everybody in the whole world, they're not all that many who would qualify to take that course, right? This is a course that requires an MD to, does it to begin? Or it requires certain knowledge it's to a, It's a knowledge. But it's not yes. an entry level course. Right. So there are people who already have some capacity, who have a commitment to a certain area, and they want to move further. And I think that's just magnificent that, that edX can speak to that need and that demand in such a, uh, at such a level of scale and, and of excellence because it comes from the School of Public Health. <laughs> That's right. And you know, it's interesting because uh, you mentioned India. Um, there are 40,000 students in, in, in edics. And I, I want to thank President Faust because uh, it was decided to have only two courses to, to, to launch because, you know, we're testing the waters, as it were. And it's, it's an incredible. Um, uh, opportunity for the school that one of the two courses is this course in epidemiology and, and biostatistics. It's a school of public health. The interesting thing is the largest contingent is from the United States, as you might expect. The second largest is from India. Is it? I didn't know that yet. Yeah? But the fact it speaks exactly to that mm -hmm. uh, huge, mm -hmm. huge appetite for, 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 um, for knowledge that's, that's, uh, that's all over. Uh, it's also we're very proud that this is the latest Harvard-MIT association because as far as we know the first one was the Harvard MIT School for Health Officers, mm -hmm. whose centennial we will be celebrating next year, uh, around the theme of education and the fact that you know we were there a hundred years ago, really innovating in in education and public health, and now a hundred years later, again through that kind of partnership, we're really at the cutting edge of what could potentially be this huge revolution mm -hmm. in the way, uh, in, in the way education is is delivered. Um, it's, I think, a, what a, a wonderful way to celebrate with this course. Yes. What better celebration yeah, could it be? It's, it's great. a great. You, you had a question? Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Martin Rudy, and I echo Rachel's comments. Thank you for joining us. I'm a second year master's student in the Department of Society, Human Development, and Health. And building off the, the comments relative to our collaboration with MIT, what would you consider the significant challenge or challenges we might be facing as far as taking Harvard globally and working with other countries and maybe other entities that aren't necessarily recognized as countries? What, what kind of uh, obstacles do you have to face as a president to essentially say, okay, this we can do, but team, here we need to stop and this is going to take a lot more time to figure out? We've been talking a lot about this over the past couple of years and have had a working group that was led by the Dean of the Business School to help us look at our international strategy and to set, help us set a course for the future. The way Harvard has approached its global presence in um, past years has been really through the entrepreneurship of individual faculty and schools. And what that, that has resulted in is, I believe, more activity from Harvard than any other university in the world. And you see this certainly in the School of Public Health, which is the source of a great deal of that. Programs, um, alliances, partnerships, research um, partnerships, just student activities. So many uh, exciting programs have grown up uh, under that kind of decentralized uh, regime. But we thought we ought to, as a university, 
join together some of the capacities across the schools and have a more strategic sense of what we can do together and not duplicate and also not miss opportunities. So we've been thinking much more about what that entails and how we would articulate that strategy and enact it. And this was also prompted, this um, sort of self-examination was prompted in part by the movement towards creating physical campuses by many of our peer institutions. And we wanted to ask ourselves, is that something that would make sense for us? Why or why not? And so as we began to ask those questions, we thought, first of all, we need to focus on not what are the mechanisms, but what are the goals. And a physical campus or a partnership, those are mechanisms towards some set of goals that we want to advance. And so as we started thinking about what our goals should be, we identified making sure that all our students are educated as global citizens, ready to practice their profession or to take their knowledge to work and as part of their lives in a global context. We want to attract the best talent from around the world, students and faculty alike. We want to support research in the full global implications of, of its direction. And we also want to make sure that the ideas and intellectual contributions of Harvard can have the fullest impact all over the world. And so those were kind of the overarching principles. And as we began to think about those goals, we thought, we don't want to do a physical campus. We rather would have biggest intellectual footprint with the smallest physical footprint. Because it's really the ideas and the actions that matter, not having some structure or another. And now that we have edX, it seems even to reinforce that sense that we would be able to make so much more of an impact and outreach, as I described in a sense in answer to your question, by reaching 40,000 people in an initial course in epidemiology and biostatistics than we would have by erecting a classroom for one course on biostatistics and epidemiology for the 30 people who would be in the distance to take it. So we saw the kind of ripple effect that um, something like a digital presence can have. That doesn't mean we will have no physical presence, certainly not. We have 15 offices around the world now already. We have numerous programs that we think we need to um, strengthen and advance. And we also are eager to do it in the context of university-wide themes, some of which are being articulated for the capital campaign. What does global health mean in Brazil? What does it mean in India? What does it mean in China? How do we unite all of the parts of the university that work on these problems together? And how do we make clear that this is a Harvard University set of initiatives, not simply one school or another school operating independently of one another? So there's a whole uh, paper that I've written and, and um, we will be putting it up on the web, and we've had discussions with deans and in schools and so forth, and I think we've got a good sense of what our direction should be, but we're very excited about it, and um, I think we will see more and more activity united across the university in pursuit of these global goals. In a sense, <clears throat> you have uh, decided that the main strategy would be not to emphasize bricks, but clicks. That's good. Right? You're so good at this. I didn't even make that up. It's now a common formulation. Okay. Uh, so, um, but, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, you know, it strikes me in, in public health also where so much is about building local capacity that just to have a campus, yes. it actually might be counterproductive if yes. what you're trying to do is strengthen local capacity. I think that's such a critical part of it. What 
who are we to, to come and say, we're going to show you how you should do things? I worry about that. And so I think partnerships are better, interactive activities, and the, the local capacity, absolutely. Yeah, because you know, the, the other thing I found um, incredibly exciting about edX is the, the idea that it's an, it's, it's an open source software, a platform, and so local uh, partners can then adapt and uh, enrich it with, with locally relevant uh, mm -hmm. material, which is something that is not as easy mm -hmm. to do when you, know, you just have the more mm -hmm. conventional model of building campuses ab abroad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's been a great um, strategic decision. And one of the aspects of this that excites me is if we think about these overarching themes that could be the foundation for intellectual engagement, global health being one, energy and environment being another, just to give two examples. I love the idea of people who are not necessarily South Asianists or Brazilianists or Sinologists being, finding themselves in all these locations, enhancing their comparative understanding of these fields and building on the tremendous depth we have at Harvard in regional um, studies and research. We have enormous library resources, collections, people using that as a way of getting people who may not have ever left the United States to think about, well, how does what I do play out in, in a different location? And so globalizing everyone, I guess. Right, exactly. Very interesting. Any other questions for President Faust? Um, I, I, go, go ahead. Good afternoon. My name is Sebastian Rodriguez from the Master in Public Health Program in Health and Social Behavior. Harvard has a different structure than the general organizations in which each part is independent. Um, as a leader, how, what challenges have you faced because of that? And what advantages do you see in this model? Thank you. That's a great question and one that's occupied a lot of my attention. <laughs> Uh, Harvard is famously decentralized. It doesn't mean that, that Julio's independent. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, there is a corporation that oversees all of Harvard University and has the fiduciary responsibility for the whole thing. But the way it has operated has been through these very decentralized structures in which every tub on its own bottom has become kind of the rubric to, to describe it, that units are responsible for their own budgets, for their own programs, over the general, under the general oversight of the president and the fellows of the Harvard Corporation. But that has yielded very many successful outcomes. It has encouraged local knowledge to yield local entrepreneurship, lots of energy. Uh, it's given a capacity for leadership on, by very strong deans over the years. And so there are many positive outcomes that have made Harvard the great institution it is today. But there are also downsides to it. And I think there are particularly downsides to it at a time when knowledge is breaking down boundaries and schools and disciplines and fields are simply not as separated and siloed as they once were. I see public health as a field that exemplifies this because it has to draw on so many other fields. Medicine, social science, policy, business. How do you run an organization? How do you um, deliver a supply chain or, or operate in a world in which organizations are critical? So all of those, education as well. 
all history. Julio's always telling me how important history is to public health, and I love to hear that because I'm a historian. <laughs> um, so you need all that knowledge. And if we tell you you can't go outside your boundaries in the school of public health, we undermine your ability to do the best work that you can. And it's not just you who are feeling this way. So many fields feel this way. And we see, for example, in the sciences, the physical and life sciences, the boundaries between them are breaking down. Bioengineering is itself, in its very title, an indication of that, or that breakdown in, in traditional boundaries. So we need to organize ourselves in a manner that enables people to pursue those interests and to cross those boundaries. So we need to figure out how to retain the kind of entrepreneurship and energy that was yielded by our tub system, but not allow the tubs to keep people apart and keep us from leveraging our combined strengths. And so that is something that I've been working hard on in a variety of ways. One is through the Dean's Council and the very positive collaboration that Julio and the other deans have with one another and how that supports them and provides the basis for alliances and collaborations. And then another is administrative structures that have been very separated. How do we think about capital planning as a university so that we use our resources most effectively rather than separate them all out and act entirely independently for, from one another? So we've been changing a lot of our administrative structures at the same time as thinking about the opportunities in our intellectual undertakings. As I was listening to you, I was, it suddenly struck me that you are a, an expert on a period of history that was all about keeping a whole together and avoid the centrifugal forces. So, <laughs> you know, the fact that when, when you said, of course, we're not independent, I was just starting to have this we image of a war of secession. <laughs> and, uh, and here we have the expert on, on, uh, on how to deal with those, uh, th those circumstances. So, um, we would that, have it turned out to be a pretty bloody mess. Right, exactly. I hope not to go so, there. <laughs> we're not going to go there anywhere, anywhere. We're very, very proud to be part of the union here. Uh, uh, so. <laughs> But let me um, come back to a, a particular emphasis we've been trying in, in this series on, on women in leadership. I mean, you are the first woman to lead this university. Um, you know, when you came here, the university had been around for 373 years, something like that. And, and have you found that situation uh, posing any special challenges? Well, let me just talk a little bit about um, my thoughts on being the first woman president of Harvard and the experience and how that's affected my thoughts. When I was named president, the press was all about, this is the first woman president of Harvard. And I got all kinds of mail now at, about this. And the f press conference announcing my uh, appointment, somebody asked me from the audience, so, something about being the, being the woman president of Harvard. And I, without even thinking, responded saying, I'm not the woman president of Harvard, I'm the president of Harvard. Because I felt I didn't want to be put in a special box like a athlete who takes drugs and gets an asterisk, you know, for the records that he or she establishes, or, you know, there's some kind of debility or <laughs> identity that makes me unlike. I just thought it was so important to say, I'm going to be the president of Harvard and kind of get used to it, you know? <laughs> but when I started getting all this mail, a lot of it from little girls all around the world, 
or from parents of little girls, including parents of infants, saying, now I know my child can do anything. Now I know I can do anything. And I thought, it's really important that I inhabit this role as the woman president of Harvard and not let people think they can get away with something or marginalize me because I'm the woman president of Harvard, but really recognize and celebrate that there is a woman president of Harvard and that this can offer an aspirational goal for people that it has an important symbolic force within American life, American higher education, and even all around the world. So when I travel internationally, I always go to a girls' school, meet with young women, talk to them about their dreams, their future education, what it can mean. And that's been very rewarding for me. Julio asks, what have the obstacles been? I think that actually over the last several years, they've diminished, that there was some question at first. And actually, I, got, I think as much doubting about a historian. And when the financial <laughs> crisis came, how's this historian going to deal with this? Right. And, um, <laughs> as well as you know, the gendered aspects of perceiving capacity in a time of stress and strain. I, I don't hear much about that anymore. Now, I don't mean by that to say there are no issues or we're in a post-gendered world. That is clearly not the case. I mean, if you look at the faculty, faculty across the university is still about 25% women. It is not even 50-50. Your school is, what, what are the students? You the students is 60%, 60% now, yes. and your faculty is not 60%. No. So we have gaps, even in higher education, where there's been dramatic change. My peer presidents across the Ivy League, there are numbers of women who've taken roles as leaders of Ivy League institutions. But if we look at other elements of American life, Congress, the Fortune 500, women are a tiny minority. So there's a lot of work to be done. But I hope that perhaps women who occupy roles in which they perform um, in ways that are respected by others can have an impact and diminish some of the fear that was, was expressed to me early on in my presidency or the doubt. Um, it's a matter of, you know, watch my feet, see how it goes, and then, then tell me about women and leadership. Right. I, I think this is uh, so, so crucial. I mean, we, as you know, we have an initiative at the School on Women and Health, and part mm -hmm. of the dimensions we're trying to understand is exactly the, the uh, persistent uh, obstacles for uh, access and opportunities, really, for, for mm -hmm. uh, complete leadership, um, uh, the, the opportunities for women to exercise those leadership positions. So for our graduates, where you know, most of them are now women, understanding that, uh, the, uh, how those actually get, get overcome. And what you were saying, I mean, these letters from parents and, and young women feeling empowered uh, through your example I, I think that's, um, that's a very, mm -hmm. very interesting. Uh, I might say something also about structures. I was head of two task forces that got set up in 2005, one on women faculty, one on women and science. And I was very struck as part of the women in science one by something that's obvious to any of you who are in science, which is the way that uh, the biological clock is not consistent with the research demands of an active science career where you need to get your NIH grant, your R01, and have your family all at the same time. And 
I am president of Harvard at a very advanced age. I do not have to worry about my child. I do not have those conflicts between work and family. Um, and in fact, I th if we look at the leadership of women in higher education, I would say there are a couple of things going on there. I mean, the fact that Shirley Tillman, Amy Gutman, Ruth Simmons, new President Brown, there have just been women who've moved into those positions. These are positions that ask you to do academic things and then leadership things. So usually you're not going to be 30 years old when you have done all that. So it comes, presidencies come pretty late in career. University presidents don't tend to be very young because they have to do so many things first. And I think that is a relief in the sense that I don't feel that I'm shortchanging my child. She's already grown. The second thing I think about women in academic positions of leadership is there's a lot of conversation about women as listeners, women as uh, people who build consensus. I certainly don't think this is genetic. I think that in the United States, women are socialized that way. And there's certainly lots of women who aren't that way. And there are lots of men who are that way. But I think that the overlap of those two um, sets is considerable because of how women are expected to be in our society. And that's what you need to be to run a university. Universities have many constituents. You've got to bring them together. It is not a command and control environment. And so I think that women are particularly, women as socialized in the United States today are particularly suited for academic leadership. And that's why we're seeing a lot of women in this area. So I think there are two particular things about higher education that may work together to open it up more than some other dimensions of society. Does that make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense. But you know, you also mentioned your identity as a historian, and, and uh, you know, I would have said that exactly when you have a moment of crisis, having a historian who understands what happened before and is is has the discipline of mind. Uh, you said before, when I listen, I learn, but also as a historian, you're constantly learning the lessons of history. So, I, I think you have that additional uh, uh, bonus I, yeah. there, rather than the opposite. Uh, well, I think the perception was, what does she know about crashing markets right. and budgets and so forth? And I'd run a smaller organization, so I'd begun to be introduced. I had great people around me. I found it fascinating, so I wanted to learn about it. And the combination, I think, helped. But just what you said, I think, is true. I mean, what I've, I was interested in the Civil War, right? That is a crisis. What I was interested in is how people deal with change. And that has been a fundamental aspect of my historical work. And I do think it has helped me out in, in these leadership roles, because that's what leadership's about at this moment in time. It was what it was about when I was at the Radcliffe Institute, kind of reinventing that organization. And it's certainly, I think, what higher education is about right now. So thinking about that in a context of, of historical past has been really helpful. Yeah, that's terrific. Any uh, other questions from, from the audience? I'm a second year in the Health Policy and Management Department. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fantastic conversation. So speaking about your career, I'm wondering if you could share with us as people that are starting our careers, what are a couple lessons that you have learned that you wish you might have learned earlier and perhaps elaborating on the circumstances that led you to learn those lessons? Oh, what I wish I'd learned earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you something. I'm not sure this is precisely that, but something I think a lot about when I think about your careers and my career. I came at a time for women when nothing was expected of me. It seemed a miracle 
that I would graduate from college. It seemed an even more of a miracle that I would get a PhD. Everything that opened to me was a surprise because I was kind of on that top of the wave of the change of the role of women in the United States, in the world, and in higher education. So every time I achieved something, it was just wondrous to me. And when I see my daughter who's 30 and her friends, and I, I won't extrapolate to all of you without permission, but see if any of this <laughs> rings true, I feel as if you have so much better a sense of what the hurdles are, what the stakes are, what you want to win, what the good fellowship is, what the good job is, what the imperative next step is, that you can be very disappointed if you don't achieve them. You also can narrow your path and not be as open to alternative opportunities or, or other paths that might become available within, even within your general sense of your direction. And someone said to me after I was named president, well, did you plan to be president of Harvard when you were a teenager? <laughs> and I said, I would have had to be insane. <laughs> Women weren't even allowed in the undergraduate library at Harvard when I was a teenager. There were no women, tenured women, maybe one. I'm trying to think of the dates. But there was probably one tenured woman on the Faculty of Arts and Sciences when I was a teenager, if one. So to have a career that opens as a series of marvelous surprises is really nice because I don't feel I'm falling. I have never felt I was falling short because I never knew what I might fall short of. Mm -hmm. But it also made me think, well, this is the next great thing. Let's try this one. And I didn't say, all right, this is the path, and I must get this degree and this award and this job and this thing. Instead, I sort of said, well, let's see what's next. And that improvisation, I think, served me well. So feel blessed because there is more that is explicitly open now. But don't lose that sense of the possibility of improvisation and the desirability of improvisation. And don't be imprisoned by the expectations that I never had to deal with. <laughs> That's very, you know, the other thing um, that we're very proud is that Alice Hamilton was uh, a faculty member here, really one of the founders of the whole mm -hmm. field of occupational health. And as far as I know, she was the first woman to be a faculty member at Harvard, al although right. she was not allowed to march at commencement. But uh, you know, <laughs> and there, there were restrictions. But uh, but at least you know we had. We're proud to say that we had the first uh, woman faculty faculty member. Um, we're getting to the, to the end of our um, uh, fantastic conversation with President Faust. I, I'd like, I want to ask her one question, but let me first ask if uh, anyone else in the audience would like to, to ask something of our president. Because, uh, well, go ahead. You already asked one, but uh, <laughs> go, go ahead. Well, just a quick one. Uh, as far as the future, are there any potential obstacles or maybe thunderstorms out there that you're keeping your eye on that you'd like to share that you can share with us to say, you know, as a president, there's some big tasks out there that I know are coming up, not just the global perspective, not just how I can support women in leadership and not how we can just uh, work with MIT, but are there any other areas that we might have not, might not have addressed today that you could speak mm -hmm. to quickly? Mm -hmm. 
when I spoke about a disruptive time, a transformative time in higher education, one of the dimensions of that is how we finance ourselves. And this is something I know you all think very hard about here in the School of Public Health because you are so dependent on grant support from the federal government. And we see a time when federal deficits are such that we're uncertain about the future funding stream for scientific research. We're also in an environment, a global economic environment, where we're unlikely to see the kind of investment returns that have fueled our endowment and enabled us to invest in financial aid and all these wonderful new programs that have have grown around the university in the past couple of decades. We also see families who are much more constrained in their resources and are unlikely to be able to uh, respond to increasing tuition, so that is not going to be a source of revenue. So as we think about how we support what we do, we have some big questions to ask, and we're being asked quite vehemently by politicians and public discourse about the cost of higher education. So I think those are critical dimensions of what we need to address, and Julia is working very hard on diversifying resource streams here and revenue streams here. And I think all of us need to make sure that education can thrive and be available to people of talent, and we must not price it out of, out of the realm of, of reach for people here in the United States and around the world. It actually um, fits very naturally to what I wanted to ask you as a, as a final concluding question. I've heard you uh, often you know, talk about the need to preserve some of the fundamental values of scholarship and learning, even at a time where we're very often pressed for, for the practical mm -hmm. side. Mm -hmm. Of course, at the School of Public Health, we think a lot of how do we have an impact on the world? How do we address some of these bigger issues? But uh, I always like to say that you know, we have two pillars, excellence and relevance. I mean, certainly we try to be relevant for a lot of the mm -hmm. largest health concerns. But the pursuit of excellence is an equally important value. And as, as you think of the role of the university in the 21st century, in this new world, uh, much more interconnected, but at the same time much more subject to societal pressures for quick solutions to problems, how, how do you see the efforts to preserve some of these values that have made universities such an enduring and fundamental institutions? Mm -hmm. And how do we avoid you know, just turning ourselves into um, you know, em embellished consulting entities mm -hmm. or companies? Mm -hmm. um, how in this challenging environment, uh, with all of those expectations, do we preserve the core values of, of a university in the 21st century and beyond? I'm really glad you asked that question, and I certainly don't have the answers to how we accomplish it. I think one of the ways we have to accomplish it is to remind ourselves how important it is. These economic pressures around the world are putting a lot of pressure on higher education to train students to have jobs that will enhance their social mobility and contribute to economic growth. That's completely understandable, and it's a completely reasonable goal. We also see the need for knowledge to solve immediate social problems. But any of you who have been researchers or been in a research institution understand that sometimes the most fruitful questions ultimately are the ones that do not have immediate answers. They're the ones that set learning on a path of a whole series of discoveries that propel us into a future that we can't yet imagine. So I think that we threaten what universities uniquely
uniquely are and uniquely must do. If we focus too much on the immediate, what someone's first job is going to be, what the immediate outcome of a piece of research will be. Universities are unusual institutions in society because they are meant to embrace the long term. The long term backwards, where's our history brought us? The long term forwards, where do we want to go? Not just when you graduate or when you get your second job or your third job, but for your children and your grandchildren. What should society be? How should we get there? And I think that is so important for us to emphasize and sustain and emphatically pronounce as part of our essence and not forget, because we lose so much if we lose that sense of kind of transcendent engagement that universities have and that is a matter of values as much as it is, I think, a matter of instrumental application. I often think about how um, we spend time thinking about how we get to certain places and you know, what is going to solve a certain problem. But how do we define what the problem is? Global health is a problem because we believe that people should have health care. What is it that makes us believe that people have a right to good health? We have to believe that before we know how we get there. And what are the kinds of thoughtful discussions that undergraduates might have or that we as a society need to have in order to have those values and understand where it is we want all this knowledge to take us? Well, that's, I think, an amazing way to, to um, end our, our um, uh, decision-making voices from the field session, and particularly with the emphasis on women in leadership. I want to thank, uh, first of all, all of you for being here and everyone who's been watching and who will be watching. But I special thanks to student government and to the Women in Leadership uh, Initiative of, of student government, which have actually um, had the idea of having this, uh, this kind of conversations. And most of all, I want to thank President Drew Faust. Uh, I think you've heard um, an amazing expression of this uh, and, and, and a very deep reflection on this question of multiple identities um, and not being captured by any, but actually mobilizing all of those in a leadership role. You know, the historian, the woman, the president, um, uh, using all of those to achieve great things for a great institution. Um, I was reminded with your last uh, comment on something you said in your inaugural address uh, at Harvard when you said that universities are stewards of the past and stewards of the future, that we cannot just be captured by the present and immediate uh, action, although we are here in the present, but we have this responsibility of being stewards of the past, preserving uh, uh, and understanding and learning, as a good historian would, would do, and then we're stewards of the future. And that's exactly what um, we've been delighted today uh, with President Faust here, a conversation that uh, helps us understand where we come from, how do we learn from that, how do we build on the wealth of our, our legacy as we build the future of public health and of universities worldwide. It's been a great privilege to have you, you here. I really thank you very much for Thanks, being at the Harvard School of Public Health. Thanks to all of you. This has been a production of Decision Making, Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share decision-making voices from the field.